From the Los Angeles Times, this is Coronavirus in California, stories from the front lines. I'm Gustavo Arellano. It's Tuesday, June 2nd. Today, the first guest for this podcast was my LA Times colleague, Salmia Carlamangla, our health reporter. When we talked two months ago, we didn't know how the pandemic would play out. 40 episodes later, we still don't know how coronavirus will play out. There's been good news and bad news and news no one could have expected. The only constant for all of us has been, well, uncertainty. But nevertheless, Salmia says there's hope that we will eventually get to a better place. Blue Shield of California would like to take this moment to thank the mothers, fathers, sisters, brothers, daughters, sons, friends, and heroes on the front line. This fight is tough, but so are you. And we're grateful for your courage and your dedication to keeping us all safe and healthy. Thank you. So, Salmia, um, how's coronavirus treating you? You know, it's been a busy couple of months. Because we talked at this point almost two months ago for the very first episode of this, you know, coronavirus in California. So far, where we're at, did you expect us to be in this place? Are we better than where you thought we were going to be? Worse? What do you think? Hmm. It's hard for me to even remember what it was like (laughs) two months ago. But, I mean, I think the whole thing, and we say this over and over and over, but... It just feels so unprecedented. I don't know if anyone is predicting even what's going to happen a month out or even a couple of weeks out. The shutdown itself felt so surprising. I think a couple days before the Bay Area shut down, because they were the first to shut down, one of my friends asked me, like, oh, are we ever going to have something like what they did in Italy and China, like a shutdown? And I was like, no, that'll never happen in the U.S. Because I had interviewed all these experts who said it would never happen in the U.S., And then it happened. And so then I think it happened and we thought it would be brief and now it's not brief. So, no, I think this has defied every expectation I've had along the way. And then early on, of course, you had these projections, you know, infamously, Governor Gavin Newsom said 25 million Californians would contract coronavirus. And so far, the numbers have been far lower than that. But nevertheless, certain areas of California have been hit far harder than others. Yeah, uh, definitely a couple months ago when we talked, the Bay Area was looking not great. And now L.A. has really emerged as the hotspot. We have the majority of cases, majority of deaths. I mean, Newsom's numbers were way, way, way off. And they were supposed to be calculated, I believe, based on if there was no social distancing at all. But even then, they seem to be a, a bit of an exaggeration. But it's still been pretty devastating throughout the state. But yeah, especially in pockets like L.A. Yeah, you did a story about how L.A. County became an epicenter. What what are some of the reasons people who are tracking this are giving for that? Yeah, it's a bit of a head scratcher. And I think it's one of those things that maybe will become clearer, you know, a couple months from now or a year from now when we look back and understand the virus more. And the reason it's kind of confusing is because L.A. was actually at the forefront of a lot of the things that we think bring down case numbers. So we were the first city to have universal masking. We had a stay-at-home order that went into effect the same day as the states, but a couple hours before, but still before the rest of the country. But we didn't have very good testing. And so when we were putting the stay-at-home order into effect, we already had a lot of cases that we had missed. It had already made its way throughout different parts of the community. And once it got there, it's been really hard for LA to contain because we have not necessarily density like the way you would think of New York or San Francisco, just a lot of people, we have really overcrowded housing. And that's actually like even more of a risk for something like coronavirus because it's most easily transmitted within a household with people who you spend a lot of time with, close contact, shared, you know, food, that kind of stuff. So 
once it got here, it just seems that we have been unable to stamp it out because it might have made its way into a home that has like, you know, 10 people in it. Or even if it didn't get there before the shutdown, maybe that home has one essential worker and that person unfortunately got sick and then gave it to a bunch of other people. People have also mentioned like pollution and poverty and, you know, all the factors that are at play there. A large minority population that maybe has underlying health conditions that are making them more vulnerable. Is everyone's kind of just throwing around a bunch of different explanations and hoping that one of them becomes clear. Yeah, no, like like you said, this is all unprecedented. So all we have right now is theories and probably won't have good answers for years even. Yeah, like it feels like every couple of weeks our understanding of what's a risk factor and what's not changes a lot. You know, at the beginning, I felt like I was like wiping down all my groceries really intensely because there had been studies that had found the virus could last on plastic or metal for a certain amount of time. And I don't really do that as much anymore. And now, because we've learned that it can last, but it degrades really quickly, and you're probably not going to get that much on your hand to then touch your face to get yourself sick that way. But now we know that people without symptoms can get other people sick. And so now, like, masking has become much more important. And so as we our understanding gets flushed out over the next couple of months, I feel like maybe we'll understand more about why a place like L.A. is is doing worse than the rest of the state. Another big thing that has happened, especially in the past month, a lot of resistance to these stay-at-home ordinances and also wearing masks. I mean, we remember the protests that happened in Huntington Beach and the state capitol and, you know, lawsuits going up against Newsom and the state. Uh, were you expecting that to happen? I mean, I don't know if I expected it, but I feel like I understand it. I mean, this is a huge unprecedented thing and... I, as someone who follows it closely, feel like I'm always hearing conflicting things and it's hard to figure out what's right, even not just from the government, but from like people who've studied this virus, studied these policies for decades and decades. And so it makes sense to me that people would feel this kind of whiplash and then think like, oh, none of this is real. I'm going to protest all of these restrictions. I don't know what to trust, who or what to trust. Yeah, you know, at the very beginning, I really thought, okay, this is going to be the natural emergency that's going to unite Americans, or at least Californians, for the next couple of months, we're just going to grin and bear it together. But no, within a couple of weeks, you just started seeing the fraying at those edges, which, of course, turned out into full-scale protests and lawsuits. I know. This is like my favorite thing to talk about regarding coronavirus. Like late February is when I was like, oh, no, this is going to be a really big deal. That was also my initial impulse because it was like around the time of impeachment and all this divisiveness. And I was like, wow, this is going to be the thing. Who could disagree about a pandemic and, you know, this need to stop a virus? Like everyone's got to be on the same side with this. This is like going to be, you know, the unifying thing. And I have been proven so deeply wrong. <laughs> I know. It, it makes me sad at the end of everything. Me too. This LA Times podcast is presented by Blue Shield of California. The fight is tough, but so are you. Thank you, Frontline. This advertiser has no influence over editorial decisions or content.
a lot of the stories you've been doing, Salmi, is also about how coronavirus has been affecting healthcare workers. You did this really oh heartbreaking story about a nurse who didn't have a mask, and then she went in to take care of a patient, and then a couple weeks later, she passed away from coronavirus. Yeah, that story just broke my heart. I yeah, the when we first started reporting on this, we started doing these stories on personal protective equipment and the shortage of them, and we would do one every week. And first, it was like you know, nurses are worried that when the wave hits, they're not going to have enough. And then it was nurses are saying that they don't have enough and they now have patients. And then it just kept escalating. Every week we did a PPE story that was worse and worse. You know, we did one about nurses who refused to go into coronavirus patient rooms without N95 masks and they were suspended from work because they refused to go into the room. And they said that the doctors had brought their own and the doctors said, don't go in there. But the way the CDC has drafted these policies during the pandemic says that you don't require an N95 mask, which is the most protective mask, unless the patient is undergoing some sort of procedure that aerosolizes the virus. So it's the virus will linger in the air more and you need more protection. Otherwise, they say a surgical mask is fine. But these nurses are, you know, worried and, you know, patients coughing and clearly very sick, like they want an N95. And so we read about that. And then kind of like the worst possible outcome was that story you mentioned. This nurse uh, who worked at Hollywood Presbyterian was a charge nurse on a floor that didn't primarily treat COVID patients, but all her coworkers say like, oh yeah, we have COVID patients because of overflow or other reasons. And because she's a charge nurse, when you call a code, she has to respond. So someone called a code blue because the patient wasn't breathing. She ran in, didn't have time to grab an N95. Her coworkers say that if she had wanted one, it would have taken, you know, like an hour to get one. She would have had to check one out if she could even get one. So she went in, was in the room for more than 30 minutes, within three days had COVID symptoms. And then I think three or four days after that, she passed away. The real life impact of this shortage of gear, which feels like this very abstract thing has been like very terrible. Are nurses and doctors, how's their situation with the PPEs now? You know, this story was actually not that long ago, and that's like what was surprising to me. I think the narrative had changed around how we were writing about it, how everyone was writing about it, which was like, there's more gear now because people were crowdfunding gear, they were, hospitals were stocking up. And I think what we're seeing now is this patchwork where you have these well-funded hospitals that have a lot of gear and they're distributing it to their staff. And then you have these maybe hospitals with less money, different management, you know, just you just have some hospitals where it's good and some hospitals where it's bad. The ones where it's bad, it, the staff seem particularly frustrated because they say that they think the hospital has gear, you know, like 20,000 masks have been donated, but the hospital's worried about a surge, so they're not giving it out. So now the story has just become a little bit more muddled, um, but I think there's definitely still nurses, doctors who are upset about a lack of protective gear. And an important thing to note is that the guidelines by which we're judging how much gear they have were guidelines that were created for the pandemic. So they're not normal guidelines. Typically, you wear an N95 for each patient visit. It's like you see the patient, you wear the mask, you take it off, you throw it away. See the next patient, wear a mask, take it off, you throw it away. Here, we're saying that you can wear an N95 for a day, for a week. You can wear a gown for a day, for a week. And all of these things are meant to be disposable items. And so even if we have gear by pandemic standards, nurses are like, we spent decades learning how to do infection control, and this is not it. So they feel unsafe even when things are quote-unquote good. 
Yeah, you, you'd think at this point, two months in, we'd be a little bit, or almost three months in, if not four months in, it just keeps going, we'd be a little bit better at this point. Yeah, you would hope so. And it just seems like it's a, a problem that's definitely going to continue for, I don't know, maybe indefinitely through the pandemic. Uh, it just isn't something that was easily solvable. Yeah, and, you, and we speak of stuff being indefinite. We're covering coronavirus. We're just completely wrapped around this issue. And then all of a sudden, protests across the country, uh, you know, for Black Lives Matter. At least I was in a rally in Santa Ana and almost everyone was wearing masks. But still, you get 2,000, 3,000, 5,000 people in close proximity. Uh, probably one of them might have coronavirus. And there you go, a super spreading event. Yeah, I, I know. I, it's after spending so long thinking about how people need to be distanced, those images of the protest, I mean, they're powerful in so many ways, but I also have this piece of me that's like, oh no, this is like the exact thing that we're worried about when it comes to coronavirus. Like those big gatherings are the very last thing that are going to come back, like concerts, sporting events. So we did a story about this risk too, and this sort of what epidemiologists are thinking when they're looking at the protests. And a lot of them actually said, okay, they're wearing masks. That's like number one. That's the best thing they could be doing. And wearing a mask can reduce your risk of release because the mask is really to protect other people. So it reduces how much virus you release by say 80%. That's actually really good. But then you have, like you said, thousands and thousands of people that 20% that's still being released is just multiplied over and over. And then you have some people who maybe aren't wearing masks. And then you have people who are yelling and chanting and screaming. And those things release the virus even more. And if you have one person who, for whatever reason, is the like a quote-unquote super spreader, then you can really uh, infect a lot of people. And so one of the experts I talked to said something like, this happens every week. There's some sort of natural experiment with the virus. And we know there's different factors. Like, it's good that they're outdoors. It's not good that they're yelling. It's good that they're wearing masks. It's not good that they're not social distancing. It was like, we have all these factors. And, you know, in two or three weeks, if these people are going to get sick, when they get sick, we'll understand just how much each of those factors matters. And so, yeah, there's this concern of a second wave that was supposed to be in the winter or the fall. And now there's this concern of this second wave in three weeks from now, right as things were starting to reopen and the case numbers were really starting to decline. I just hope it's not like that infamous uh, Liberty Bonds rally that happened in Philadelphia in 1918, where the medical experts were telling the city, please, please, please do not have this event. You cannot have all these uh, people together with the Spanish flu going around. The city said, who cares? And then within a week, thousands of people were dead. And, uh, you know, the Spanish flu really took off on its second wave. Ooh, yeah. I mean, I... <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I think we're really, really worried about what's going to happen. I feel good that people are wearing masks, but just the vast numbers of people in close contact. And I've watched so many videos, and maybe this is a consequence of the months and months of being cooped up, but like, I don't see much, if any, social distancing at a lot of these rallies. And I know that it's really difficult. And it's just, I was talking to an expert who said something like, you know, this is a display of humanity and like people want to join hands and link arms and be with around other people and, you know, speak up against police brutality in this very human way. But it goes against all of these directives that we've gotten about how to prevent the spread of coronavirus. And it's just like these two conflicting, conflicting things. And I guess we'll see what the consequences are in terms of public health. <laughs> yeah, a lot, lot of our conversation, unfortunately, has 
been a little bit Debbie Downer. So let's end this on the positive note. Like, wh- wh- where is the hope that you're seeing? What good things have you seen in the past couple of months? What do you see in the future? Give us some hope. Yeah. Um, I mean, I know we talked about the protests, but I actually think that people have been very quick to adopt the regulations as they change. You know, everyone around me where I live in L.A. is usually wearing a mask. Everywhere I go, people are wearing masks. I see people really trying, and I just think it's really impressive. And I think the fringe voices are maybe amplified on social media and, play. you know, they just tend to be louder. But I feel like we're actually seeing that maybe a little bit of that unity that we hoped for, where we do see a lot of people in California, at least, following all of the regulations. And, you know, they're not easy and for months on end. And I think that's really impressive. I also think that the reason the social distancing has gone on for so long is we saw that in other countries that when they did a lockdown, that didn't just make the virus go away. So they have these resurgence of cases in China and Korea after they lifted their lockdown measures. And I think that was kind of devastating for people in the U.S. because we were thinking, oh, we do this and then, you know, we'll have the outcome that they had. But then turns out they didn't have a great outcome either. And so now I think we're kind of looking at this living with the virus, which sounds bad, but I mean, we live with the flu and we live with other viruses and we are very adaptable. And that sort of, to me, feels like the direction that this is probably going in. And that feels like something that I feel like given how we've responded to these much more severe recommendations than what living with the virus would entail, that like we'll actually be able to do that as a society. And I also, just on a sort of numbers level, the case numbers are going down. So I know we talked about them going up, but they're actually like we've seen tremendous progress, especially in California and even L.A. Now the numbers are finally going down. And I think Newsom said on Friday that only 4% of people being tested for the virus are testing positive, And that's really low. There's some hope. We got to keep to the program, folks. Keep to the program. Thank you so much for this interview and for all the work that you do. Of course. Thanks for having me on. That's it for today's episode of Coronavirus in California, Stories from the Front Lines. Thanks for listening. And since this is episode 40, like an old school quarantine, this podcast is coming to a close. We're extremely proud of this podcast, not just for the important stories we heard and told, but also because it was the LA Times' first daily podcast and our first major foray into news podcasting. But we intend to be back soon with more podcasts in this vein. Stay tuned. This podcast was hosted by me, Gustavo Arellano. Our producers are Paige Heimson and Stan Lee. Our senior producer is Rena Palta, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and our original music was composed by Andrew Eppen. If you like our podcast, send me a note so I could forward to the bosses and we could have more of it. Gustavo.Ariano at latimes.com. Catch up on past episodes by subscribing and leave us a five-star review on Apple. Special gracias to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Hector Becerra, and Clint Schaff. For the latest coronavirus stories by my LA Times colleagues, including an up-to-the-minute tracker of cases across California, don't forget to visit our website. Right now, access to facts has never been more important, and the LA Times is the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Stay safe and see you soon.